everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Today's Voices of Conservation Science. I'm Andrea Litt, your host for today's podcast, which focuses on people doing science that then is used to conserve natural resources. So today I'm here with Mike Coriel, who's a graduate student at Montana State University. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So let's uh, just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a PhD candidate here in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. And I grew up in northern Michigan. Um, got my undergraduate degree from Western Michigan University. Moved out here to Montana in 2013 to start my graduate work. Excellent. So what did you major in during your undergrad? Uh, I had a double major in biological sciences and environmental studies. Okay, so you started there in, in maybe what's more closely related to natural resources, and then you're, you're in this Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and that's a little different than some of the other people that's been on this podcast. But maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about how, how your, your current affiliation with your department intersects with, with conservation. Sure. So I kind of, I kind of came here. Um, I came here through the molecular biosciences program, which is an interdisciplinary program. So we did rotations all over the campus. Um, I rotated in the LRAS department with Kathy Zabinski. I rotated in chemistry department and microbiology. And one of the guys that I met with, Tim McDermott. Um, who studies arsenic interactions with microbes in the soil, kind of heard me out and listened to what I had to say about my interests, and he thought I would be interested in this other lab um, where they're trying to look at arsenic-microbe interactions in the human gut, in the human microbial ecosystem. And I went over there and did a rotation, kind of working with... um, Tim as well, and ended up joining the walk lab um, after my rotations were up. And now I'm working on the studying the role of uh, the human microbiome in arsenic toxicity. So I want to talk a little bit more about your research, but before we get there, let's talk about a few other things about you. Given that you had this background in biological sciences and, and certainly your, your work now will relate as well, but Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what got you interested in, in conservation, what got you interested in nature growing up. or Sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, like I said, I grew up in northern Michigan. I spent a lot of time outside as a kid. Um, when I was in college, I did a research fellowship at this um, sustainability house at, at Western Michigan called the Gibbs House for Environmental Research and kind of spent a lot of time there with activists and um, community organizers and, and working with people to, to really start some, some conservation projects, um, even as an undergraduate, which was a pretty cool experience and definitely got me interested in that side of life sciences. That sounds like a really interesting program. Is it still in existence? It is. It's uh, I think it's expanded quite a bit since I've left there actually. 
I think it's really interesting to think about how lots of different disciplines might play into to conservation and and not just the the straight sciences and so what what do you as a scientist what role do you think things like art and some of these other fields that maybe came came to play in your experience there what do you, what role do you think they play in in the science and conservation we do mm that's a really good sort of philosophical question <laughs> yeah um it was interesting. So I, yeah, we, I lived with a poet at this house. We had a like a sort of poet laureate for the, for the organization. And we had a lot of different people doing art projects as well. Um, and I think a lot of that was helping to raise awareness in the public consciousness about issues. I mean, we organized a whole campaign to try to save this local land refuge out in uh, Southwest Michigan and, and we had days where we would go out to the land refuge and do little art projects in the woods and get nice groups of people together. And, and I think it really helped at least paint a picture of, you know, that people are using this land and get that notion into the public mindset. Those are the kinds of things that can compel people into careers in conservation and not just doing it as part of a class or... or for fun. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the questions we ask on this podcast often is um, whether you experienced any hurdles as you moved through your, your training, your, your career to date, and how did you overcome them? So either personal or professional cha uh, challenges that you encountered and, and how you, how you overcame them to get where you are today. Sure. Um, yeah, I definitely, well, I mean, I don't know if it counts as a hurdle because I think in, in a way growing up in a rural part of Michigan really helped me develop a sense of of wanting to connect with nature. But, um, you know, I also went to a very small high school, graduated with a class of about 35 kids. And when I got to college, I realized even though I kind of graduated close to the top of my class in high school, I was probably, you know, at least a couple semesters behind most of my, my friends in college, um, just in terms of math and science education. We didn't really have AP classes or anything like that going on in, in the rural areas. So that definitely struck me as a challenge. And, and I think I avoided certain college classes uh, moving forward because of some of those reasons maybe seemed a little intimidating, mm -hmm. uh -huh. but, um, yeah, I don't, it doesn't really bother me at this point anymore. I'm pretty happy with where I've ended up so far. So somehow you have either pushed yourself at some point to take those courses or to gain that knowledge, or you've managed to get here in other, in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. The more I, I mean, the more I take, some of these high level statistics courses and stuff in grad school, the more I'm like, man, this stuff's easy. I should have done a long time ago. So what advice would you give to your, your younger, younger self or other people that maybe were in a similar, find themselves in a similar position? Um, take more stats. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to be a, a, a theme that as our science, as we get more data, we need the tools to be able to look at the, look at the data. Yeah. And how do you make it so it's not so intimidating when, when it's, when it, when students are typically afraid of math? 
How do you make it not so intimidating? <laughs> Maybe it's just too hard of a question. Yeah, I don't know. Somehow you made it over that hurdle. Can you think of how anything, anything anybody said or something you encountered that helped you get over that fear? I think I just kind of spent a lot of time drifting around and, and feeling out the things I was interested in. And then once I found something that I was into, I you know, kind of sat down and, and buried my nose in the textbooks and got there. It does seem like you have lots of diverse interests and that uh, sounds like it's also served you quite well. And it does seem like um, more and more ecological questions are becoming more and more multidisciplinary. And so maybe one individual doesn't have to have all the, the knowledge of all these things, but certainly having dabbled in, in a variety of things um, could be seen as a very valuable asset for ecological type research. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about your research? You, you alluded to it earlier, but, but give us the, give us the lowdown. Yeah. So I guess the primary research focus um, that I'm working on is looking at how the human microbiome, especially the microbial communities that are living in our gut, influence the toxicity of arsenic. And we really were looking into this because arsenic is um, a pretty common environmental contaminant. And, and it's one that we still are trying to figure out all of the health implications of even low levels of exposure. Where is arsenic a problem? Where in the country and where do we, where would we pick it up? Um, pretty much it's kind of heterogeneously distributed around the globe. Uh, most people nowadays are exposed through groundwater. So drinking water wells. Um, there are millions of people in places like Bangladesh and different parts of China and India but also here in Gallatin County in Montana, um, we've got some quite a few groundwater wells that have elevated levels of arsenic. And at levels that could be potentially harmful. Mm -hmm. So how, what are you finding? What, what are you studying exactly with the, the gut and the microbiome, which does seem to be um, quite an important and, and up and coming research topic these days? Yeah. So one of the first things that I found um, almost, uh, I don't want to say an accident, but it was really during my rotation project was that in a mouse model, so I use mice to do, to do my research on the microbiome. Um, if you give a mouse an antibiotic, you knock its microbiome around, you kind of disrupt that community. And if, if they're exposed to arsenic, they end up being able to excrete less of it when you disrupt their their gut communities. And we also found that they had more of it accumulating in their tissues during that exposure time. After they've had an antibiotic and then been exposed to arsenic. Mm -hmm. And so if they haven't been exposed to the, the antibiotic, which would be one of the main ways that our microbiome would get out of whack. Is that fair? Um, it's definitely a common way. Um, and there's, there's a lot of research looking at the, um, health implications and and sort of uh, understudied side effects of antibiotic use and perturbing that microbiome community. Mm -hmm. So it just makes us less able to deal with the toxins that then we might encounter. Mm -hmm. So certainly you've alluded to it already, but but 
Can you talk about why you see your research as important? What its contribution could be? Well, I think if you, so for example, with this antibiotic um, experiment that we had, um, when public health agencies are doing risk assessments for environmental toxins, I think that something like that could help contribute to how those risk models are then constructed and help policymakers make uh, the the best decisions that we can make with public resources to help try and mitigate the risk from those sorts of things. And I think that's probably one of the bigger ways is, is that we can help contribute to, yeah, sort of the public health research um, side of things. And so the, the groundwater in, in developed countries, mm-hmm. or maybe you might imagine that arsenic would be less of an issue in developed countries or say here in Gallatin Valley in Gallatin County. Um, is it a matter of just different kinds of wastewater or water treatment or are there other, other things that we need to be thinking about in terms of the, the arsenic or other, these other toxins? Well, if you live in the city if you're on a municipal water system, um, those tend to be pretty well tested. And if there is anything like elevated levels of arsenic or lead, um, it'll show up in a water quality report and they're going to be required to take actions to mitigate that. But if you own your own home and you're out in the countryside and you have a, a well water system, um, those are often not tested at all. And so it's really important for people to to get your wells tested. It's it's actually really inexpensive here in Montana. I think uh, it's like twenty dollars to get your wells tested for arsenic and other heavy metals. And then if there is something going on, you don't necessarily need to sell your house. Um, a home filtration system that can remove arsenic is pretty inexpensive compared with the cost of owning a home. So water filters on your tap or something more complicated than that? Um, I think it's a little more complicated. I've never actually used <laughs> Haven't one. Haven't had to deal. <laughs> but I think they're uh I think it's sort of like a like a water softener system that under the sink kind yeah, of deal. Sort of an RO right. reverse osmosis filtration and thing. What happens if we if we are exposed to arsenic? What are the what are the human health hazards? Um, yeah, so most people aren't exposed to, I guess, levels that would cause acute poisoning. So, um, you're not going to drop dead tomorrow, but thank goodness, um, lifetime exposures are associated with a number of different types of cancer, um, neurodegenerative disorders, some metabolic disorders have been linked with arsenic exposure, like diabetes, type two diabetes, um, and also cardiovascular disease. And you talked about Bangladesh and, and other developing countries. Are levels of arsenic exposure at a, at a rate or at a level that um, would be problematic in those places as well? Um, I'm sorry. What, uh, <laughs> you, you talked about Bangladesh yeah. as a, as a place where, where maybe there's high levels of arsenic. Are those at levels that are really problematic or are they at this low grade as you might expect someplace like here? Um, they're, they're at low levels, but probably higher than most of the wells in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, but still levels that are dangerous, um, for long-term exposure. 
And you're really interested in this gut microbiome piece, maybe maybe more than the the arsenic. You're just using the arsenic as the the way to to look at the role of the microbiome. Um, I'm kind of more interested in in the the ecology of the microbiome, yeah. yeah. And um, but I also think that uh, issues like environmental toxicology are pretty interesting and relevant as well. This, uh, again, the idea of a microbiome, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that and how we have this whole community in our digestive systems and, and how, besides antibiotics, how those might be changing or different in different places. Sure. Yeah. So humans are, our bodies in general are pretty much covered with bacteria from head to toe most (laughs) of the time. Um, But really on the on the inside of our intestinal tract, uh, we have really dense and really diverse communities that uh, contribute to human health in a lot of ways that people really didn't, maybe couldn't have known about even 20, 25 years ago. We're really kind of opening up this new field of, of microbiome science, um, mostly driven by advances in sequencing technology and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah. I, I recently um, had heard about some work with um, microbiomes in birds and looking at where birds had spent time using the microbiome to, to figure out where, where birds had spent, had spent their time. So I thought that was a really interesting um, idea to think about how the microbial community inside an organism would tell you something about the outside of you know, where they'd been spending spending their time either foraging or doing other activities. So it does seem like to be something that's in the, we're learning more and more about um, recently. Yeah. And you work with mice Mm -hmm. and you use human microbiomes in these mice? In some of them we do. Yeah. Wow. How does that work? Well, we have um, in the, in the walk lab, we have one of maybe a handful of facilities around the country where we can maintain mice in a totally germ-free environment. And so they have no microbiome whatsoever sort of growing up. And then we take uh, a human sample and we really, it's, it's as simple as it sounds. You just kind of introduce the human sample to the mice and um, we give them a little time for it to set up shop. And and then we start our experiments. And what kinds of things are you measuring? Um, a lot of the time we're looking at um, mortality, but we're also working on some different studies looking at oxidative stress response. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, oxidative stress. So whenever your body is making energy or, or breaking down sugars um, to make energy, it's creating all these little oxide radicals, these hydroxide ions or hydrogen peroxide. Um, and, and those little guys do a lot of damage to, to your cells. And so your body has all sorts of systems to, to, to try and deal with that oxidative stress. But something about low levels of arsenic exposure um, either throws off our body's system for dealing with oxidative stress or somehow increases um, the presence of those little oxide radicals 
And so we're trying to measure that in uh, some of our experiments. Uh, what else are we looking at? Well, it sounds like you guys are doing all kinds of really interesting, yeah. interesting things. What What's the most interesting thing you could find from your research specifically? The most interesting thing, I think, would if we found a single um, bacterium or even a gene that was being encoded by the microbiome that we could then sort of replicate or select for and use that as a way to treat people that are exposed to low levels of arsenic or help help them to better be able to tolerate that without having toxic side effects, that would be probably the coolest thing we could find. That does sound pretty amazing. So some sort of introduced uh, bacterium that mm-hmm. would then help you be be more immune or be better able to deal with those toxic effects. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. Some sort of probiotic supplement. Yeah. I think I think that would be great. <laughs> um, where do you think the next steps are for you? Well, that's a good question. I'm um, even your diverse interests. Yeah. So I am I think scheduled to graduate in about a year with, up. with my PhD. Um I've been looking into a lot of different uh, work situations. There's some nonprofits um, that I'm pretty interested in that I think are would be a really uh, interesting but challenging way to go. Do you think it'll focus on these like human health kinds of issues, or will you go back to something else that maybe you focused on earlier in your in your career? I've been looking into places that. Um, well, I guess I've been looking at all sorts of jobs, but (laughs) this seems like a good strategy at this point. Yeah. Um, but there are some places around here that do, um, scientific collaborations that I think are really interesting. Uh, adventure science in here in Bozeman is a, is one place that I've been looking at. Um, and some places that do some of the same human health research as well. I think are pretty interesting. So lots of lots of potential options out here for for a guy who has lots of different interests. Yeah. How about the the wild card question of the interview, which is, uh, what's your favorite plant, your favorite animal, or one of each? Mm, yeah. Totally right. to change the the topic completely. I forgot about that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of my favorite plants has always been uh, the eastern white pine. And why is that? I like that tree too. But yeah, I we have a couple of virgin stands of white pines left in in Michigan and northern Michigan, and I I went to visit there sort of often when I was younger, and I thought they were just some of the most majestic forests I've ever hung out in. Something about those soft needles. Mm-hmm. What about do you have a favorite animal? Or are you sticking with plant? It's okay if you don't have a favorite animal. I don't have one off the it's top not, of my it's head. It's not your microbiome infused <laughs> mouse. No. <laughs> well, that's cool. We'll just leave it. We'll leave it there. Um, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us and telling us about your work and your background. And I wish you the best of luck in your, your last year here at Montana State University and wherever the next adventure may take you. Yeah, thank you. So thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about this podcast.